This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU, elegantly simple, it's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Longwoods International, one of the premier research firms in the travel and tourism space in the world. Longwoods produces groundbreaking research, thought-leading insights, and excellent counsel and service to DMOs in areas such as visitor research, advertising effectiveness, image research, and their new resident sentiment study. Learn more about this new breakthrough product at longwoods-intl.com. And now onto our show, we welcome back Don Welsh and Jack Johnson of Destinations International. For Don, he is a seasoned tourism executive, more than 35 years of experience in the industry. He served as the president and CEO of Choose Chicago, the Indianapolis Convention and Visitors Association, and the Seattle CVB. Since accepting the top spot at Destinations International in March of 2016, Don has implemented a strategic realignment for the association through a renewed commitment to focus on member needs to deliver the resources that members have determined to be essential to the success of their organizations. As the chief advocacy officer of Destinations International, Jack Johnson managed manages the overall public policy operations, including member advocacy, education, and training, the development of destination tools and best practices, coalition work with peer organizations, industry research, and related public affairs activities. Jack brings unrivaled experience developing innovative strategies, policy solutions, and civic consciousness for government, nonprofits, and small businesses. During his previous tenure with Choose Chicago, Jack was intimately involved in the merger of the Chicago Convention and Tourism Bureau and the Chicago Office of Tourism, resulting in the maximum maximization of their resources, unifying the brand message, and embedding the organization into the city's economic development strategy. Don, Jack, welcome back to DMOU. Bill, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having uh, me back on. Thanks, Bill. You bet. And Terry and I were talking about this just a few minutes ago. Don, you were last with us in February. It seems like three years. It sure does. <laughs> Since... I mean, oh my gosh, you know? So anyway, it's good to have you guys back. It's been a, a tumultuous couple of months. And for Destinations International, as you're planning moving forward, you have some big changes uh, both behind you or in front of you. So let's get right to it with your first question. Destination International members that have been tuning into your weekly webinars are likely to be up to date with what you've been doing since travel stopped on the Ides of March. But, you know, for those that may not have been clued in or are unable to follow you, tell us how Destinations International has responded responded to this crisis over the past couple of months? Us being an industry that believed that every meeting had to be face-to-face, -face, I think we've sort of found out there are ways to somehow communicate effectively uh, in the absence of being face-to-face. -face. And whether we're on a Zoom, whether we're on a webinar and others, uh, it has proven to be a very valuable way to communicate. So we entered, as you know, uh, a series of uh, weekly uh, webinars. I believe we had somewhat really low expectations, didn't know really what to expect. But we began putting together some great thought leadership, both internal and external. And it's amazing how these have grown to the point where we've had up to 2,000 people on some of our webinars. And we've had just incredible innovation. And I think the thing that Jack and I and our team have been most impressed with, we've always been an industry that shares. And unless you're fighting for a convention piece of business, this has always been a sharing industry. But under the last, as you mentioned, Bill, a couple of months, the information sharing and knowledge sharing uh, has just uh, been unprecedented. So I think of all the things we've done, that's been the most impressive to me. I'd agree, Jack. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've said this many times. We're the trade association for destination organizations. And as the trade association, our job simply is one thing, which is to help 
destination organization. So at a time like this, when you really, everyone needs help, this is really uh, uncharted territory for us, um, including us. As much information as we can get out the best. I mean, literally, as this was happening, our staff came together and saying, okay, what are the core elements that destination organizations are going to need? Um, one of it's peer-to-peer. -peer. We've made a great effort uh, through the webinars to uh, put some great uh, leading destination organization officials on there. Some of it's information that uh, how to use the tools you already have. We brought some partners in. A lot of it's just brand new information in terms of trends. We are partner with Longwoods on a weekly uh, U.S. sentiment survey. We partnered with MMGY uh, on a similar type of survey, trying to get the information through. And, and frankly, our focus now is gathering as much as you can, particularly as we start to reopen the destinations and get it on the website where we can help. I think I give a ton of plaudits to the communications team because uh, between Caitlin and uh, David, who's working on the website, uh, they've done an amazing job. So if you go to our website, you'll find all those webinars that Don was talking about, and that actually makes a tremendous library of information right there alone. But you'll also find a couple of things we've activated. One is the Destinations International blog, which is now really focused on COVID-19 and responding to it, and trying to highlight those destination organizations that are doing some cool stuff, um, as well as focusing on the whole concept of the community shared value and how this really is integrated into what folks need to do right now. Um, and the other thing you'll see is uh, if you're a destination international members, our community is back. I mean, people always ask me about my DMAI, which went away before we got there. Yeah. Us did. <laughs> but um, recreating that. And finally, um, this is our second go at it, but I think we've finally gotten it. So the uh, Destinations International community, there is a COVID-specific group on that, but there's also groups that are related to that. There's an advocacy group. There's a partners group. There's um, groups that are built around issues. There are groups that are built around jobs. So um, a lot of exchange of information is happening there. And what I love about the new system is you get a daily email saying what's going on in there. So you don't have to actually go and check yourself. Uh, you can just check the email and say, oh, that's something I really care about and pop into the community. The idea is to get as much help, uh, information, uh, and best practices in the hands of our members as possible. Hey, Bill, one of the asides we've seen from this, uh, as Jack just mentioned, you know, one of the things we did, we certainly made uh, our webinars, for the most part, complimentary. You didn't need to be a member of DI. And we began getting a global audience. We began getting some people on the calls that weren't members. And um, that has led actually to a couple of destinations actually becoming members of Destinations International. But yeah. it's amazing how it's touched part of the world where we get people on from Saudi Arabia. We would have people on from Australia and other parts of Latin America, South America, that, that allowed them to tap into it. And it's amazing how they began taking some of the community shared value ideas and really began localizing it in their respective areas or countries. Well, and I got to give you guys a lot of credit. Uh, you know, you're working with uh, a significantly reduced staff, and yet you are putting out so much content, uh, the kind of content that I think everybody was, was longing for, but didn't have really the time to, as you said, Jack, to go in and learn the tools that, that were already there and have been there for years. And not that we have the time now because we're all racing into recovery, but it has really been fascinating to watch how people are pitching in. And I'm a member of the advocacy committee. And so on those weekly calls at any, any point in time, there's you know, 30, 40 people who are sharing, as you said, everything that they're doing in their destinations, which are great thought starters for each other. 
And it, we may not copy something, but we definitely will figure out a way to take that concept and, and make it our own. Yeah. The advocacy committee meetings have been like the highlight of the week for me. I've gotten so much inspiration from it, but I've also gotten so much useful information to share as well as other questions and stuff to try and hunt down an answer to. Um, and the fact that we still have such great attendance is pretty amazing. Yeah, Everyone gets a chance to talk, which is cool. But that's a good example of using all the vehicles we do have. We've had, always had such a strong volunteer base. So the membership committee is activating and the sales and service committees are activating. The diversity committees are advocating and trying to help each other get through it all. It's just, I mean, the one number one thing I think Destinations International does better than any trade association I've been associated with is, is connect peers to peers and connect best practices to, to those who need it. Well, as we've been saying in the Z News for as long as I can remember, DMOs need to be much clearer about our value to those outside of our industry. Tell us how this crisis has moved the need for advocacy forward for Destinations International and its members. Last summer, I said we it's the greatest moment in our history, but it's also the, the time when I felt that we were most vulnerable. And I think you're seeing that play out in a way that I never even imagined. At a time when most of the funding sources for destination organizations is just basically disappearing or at least shrinking overnight, to have governments take unilateral actions to either bail out businesses, but not bail out non-for-profits, in particular destination organizations, to have governments waive or postpone the payment of hotel taxes or, or something like that without any action to uh, compensate the destination organization and to start making plans to reopen government or whatever, or have a develop an economic strategy to come back from what is certainly a recession that comes with this and not to include the destination organization, I think has shown that there still is a lot of people out there, particularly in elected government positions who don't have a full understanding. And we haven't really reached that level yet, except for in a few cases that I, out there, but haven't really reached that level yet where people say, okay, we gotta get the schools open and you know, we gotta get the libraries open and we gotta get the hospitals open and we gotta get that destination organization back open because you know, that's critical to who we are, what we are and telling our story. Last year at the convention, I gave that speech and I really thought it would take us three, four, upwards of 10 years to kind of make that complete pivot to a focus on residents and uh, have that and to become that shared value in a community where everyone says you are necessary, you are a priority, you will be funded. But now I'm thinking this is an immense opportunity. Unfortunately, everyone has shrunk their staffs and, and everyone's working on fumes, but this is the time when I'm seeing destination organizations embrace the residents, embrace the locals and get out there and share information and be visible and make connections um, and then start using regular citizens or residents or your destination it's part of the advertising campaign because you're not advertising you're creating stuff for youtube or stuff like that um, so there's a lot of cool stuff happening i actually think we could make this pivot in the next couple of years much faster than i thought before so advocacy has always been a critical element that has not gotten the attention it deserves um, now it's a question of survival I really think the destination organizations that are the ones out there being active, being visible, telling what their story is, but also connecting with residents and local elected officials are the ones that are going to survive and be strong when we get through all this, in part because they're going to receive the support they need from those folks, 
but in part because one of the things I keep telling people in order to have a successful comeback from this is not just getting people to want to come to your destination. You've also got to take your residents and move them in the direction where they say, yes, I want to have people. And I'm still seeing way too many surveys that are posting numbers in the high 50s, 60s, where destinations are still saying, I'm not ready for visitors. And this is why I keep hammering home this idea that the residents are your number one customer and the number one job right in front of you, in addition to preparing for visitors, is preparing your residents because you want visitors to have a great experience. I've been places where I've been totally ignored and blown and felt hostile by residents. I'm never going back there and I tell other people not to go there, but this is the most important time for a destination organization to advocate for their purpose, their relevance in the community and the need. The only other final piece I put in there is I, the message has to be broader than we just got to get the hotels open and fill hotel rooms and raise hotel tax. It's got to be more about the brand of the destination and that any economic development policy that's coming out of a destination who's trying to come out of this crisis, coming out of the recession, who knows, depression, whatever it is. If it doesn't have a destination organization and a destination organization that has developed a brand with its partners and really truly reflects the community as the heart of that plan, they got a big hole and they're going to fail, in my opinion. We've never been hurt harder than we are now, but I also don't think we're, we've ever been more important. Don? I think we as an industry historically have been pretty bad storytellers about what we do. And one thing I have learned, you need to advocate, you need to tell stories when things are good not when they're uh, in a crisis mode like we're in right now. So I think one of the things that, you know, in the last four plus years being here and all the times I've talked with people, I show a simple triangle. And that triangle sort of gets back to what we did and worked very hard in Chicago to be really beginning to bring the community shared value alive there. And that was that when there is alignment between our industry, the tourism industry, and the civic leaders in a community, you know, as Jack alluded to, the people that run hospitals, the people that are, you know, running universities, when they understand the value of what, quote, tourism means to their community, and then equally, if not most importantly, the elected leaders, when that triangle is, is working, magic happens. I saw that, you know, alive when we had our advocacy summit in Madison, and I saw Deb Archer in action and seeing this triangle come to life. And as simple as that sounds, it can be a bit challenging to get there because it's going to take outreach. It's going to take strategy. And I do think right now, this has been a a tremendous learning lesson. I don't think most cities right now, whether it's a restaurant operator or an event facility, will ever look at somebody coming in with a name badge again the same way. Because I think when things are good and we had an eight to 10 year run, you know, double-digit rev cars and hotels and airplanes running 90, 95% load factors. We sat back on our laurels. Yep. This has been a game-setting repositioning for all of us. We have a great opportunity now to put some of the things that Jack's talked about really in the way we operate and really become a valued partner in, in, in all communities. Yeah. And I think my biggest fear is for those destinations that had not been talking shared community value since the convention last year and into this crisis. My sense in talking to DMOs all over this country is that government, they had their own issues going, but there weren't a lot of layoffs and there weren't a lot of recognition, maybe is is the word of the cliff that was coming. And I'm starting to hear now from destination marketing organizations who are saying to me, they're asking if we can renegotiate the contract. 
And they're saying that the money needs to go either to prop up hotels and, you know, we're fourth in line behind the convention center, the hotels, the zoo, you know, and by the time it gets to us, there will be no more revenues. That's like, I think the biggest fear we see going forward. And Bill, on that point, I think probably one of the biggest challenges we continue to see, at least in the United States, is that you know, I have this $3 trillion CARES Act that somehow is included to a wise sector of people that are inclusive and allowed to tap into it. But somehow along the way, whether you're a C6 or a state-funded organization, as of now in the United States, you don't have access to those funds. So this gets back to that whole advocacy piece that somehow you advocate when things are good to educate lawmakers either at the city, state, and federal level on the importance of what this means. When you start thinking about 9% of the total jobs in the United States being tourism related, you know, when 10% of your GDP is tied to one industry, you would think that would be treated with the reverence that it deserves. But somehow, if they're not aware of what we do, then you can't lie fault with that. So we're now in the catch-up mode. And hopefully, uh, as you said, destinations are going to be included because if they're not included for many of us, uh, it will really limit our ability to help in the recovery and the most importantly, the long term. Yeah, absolutely. So as convention cancellations began to cascade and the latest research is showing that despite our best efforts to encourage planners and professionals to postpone and not cancel, the vast majority have canceled. We were all hoping the annual convention in Chicago in July was going to be our first opportunity to reconvene. Ultimately, the decision was made that meeting this summer in Chicago wasn't feasible, but you didn't cancel. Destinations International is in a pivot. Tell us what we can expect with your virtual alternative in July. It was a difficult decision, and uh, I will tell you, we didn't take it lightly. We engaged our board. We engaged our members. Certainly, we talked with the uh, city of Chicago and the Choose Chicago team and our partners at the Hyatt in leading to our decision. But based on all the input, most importantly from our members and exhibitors, we just couldn't physically do the meeting. So we were going to move to a virtual environment. We had a chance yesterday, Jack and I and a few others, to see the first really cut at what this uh, exciting two days are going to be together. The content's still being developed based on the input from our committee that helps us do this. Uh, unfortunately, when you're not live and you're going to be uh, on Zoom or some form of virtual, uh, you can't have the number of meetings that you would normally have, but we're certainly going to have a great offering. And uh, we're certainly going to have our, uh, our keynotes. I think there's going to be excitement of getting together virtually as well as live in some spaces. We're really excited about it. I think the one thing that we're most encouraged about is that uh, the number of Convention Bureau members that have now signed up for an all-access pass. So, you know, in some cases, let's say you have 20 employees, you usually can't bring 20 employees to our live meeting, but you can certainly expose 20 employees by this all-access pass. So a lot of our members are really opting rather than one or two, make it available to their entire team. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting, the content that's being provided. We're starting from a very strong place because we actually had a really strong program ready to announce. So um, we've been able to take um, a lot of the material we already have and uh, adapt it, extend it, and move it forward uh, for a post-COVID world. Um, so that's good there. We have the opportunity to take this community shared value and, and, and infuse it in several things. So how you approach your website, how do you approach building partnerships, how do you approach tracking data, how do you approach all things and, and put that twist on it because we've had a year to kind of build that out. 
pretty excited about the whole format also because um i was like oh my god we're gonna have a whole day of zooms but this is nothing like that as it's been shown to me and as we've worked to schedule it out there are so many opportunities so you can duck out and go into the library there's a virtual show floor which is really cool there are breaks there's moments there's actual networking opportunities um it's kind of cool it's not as good as in person but we're going to try and get as close as possible to it and do it all in two days which we're excited about Bill, I would say as we go forward, it's going to be interesting. I don't know, based on discussions we have with a lot of our key industry meeting planner partners, I think the, the part of the new norm will be this hybrid meeting. There will be um, certain faction and hopefully as the vaccine becomes available and people feel comfortable traveling again. But I think we've sort of found out we can be pretty effective in providing content to a broader base of people in addition to the ones that are going to come and be there live. So I don't see virtual meetings going away entirely, but I do think it's going to be a combination of that live and live web streaming and making content available even from a library standpoint. Yeah, I, I believe meetings in person are always the best, but there's always been that group of people who couldn't make it or a group of people who are in different content and it was cost prohibitive. So I think Don's absolutely right. The technology is there. Yep. The practice is now there. I don't see any yeah. major meeting not having a, a virtual element to it anymore. Yeah. Well, as you build out the agenda, you know, we're here to help. Anything you need from us, just let us know. And let's get to our bonus round questions. Don, we all love a great glass of wine with friends. And I would never know this, having hung with you, but you have a unique passion that we can all get on board with, especially during this crisis. And that is you are a connoisseur of finding the best wines under 20 bucks. Tell us some of your faves. You know, Bill, I used to spend, when I was in the hotel industry and I wasn't working in the public sector, I used to be able to spend more on wine, but nonetheless, but, I'm a <laughs> but, but nonetheless, uh, I would say right now, there's two that stand out to me. And, and I know you can't see the cork right now there. You know, I, I spend a lot of time out in the Seattle area and I become great wine fans of what's grown in Walla Walla and what's grown in Oregon and other places. But there's a, a guy named Chuck Smith who produces wines called Wines of Substance. And you'll see a lot of times big CS on the front. And I think he produces a wine for like between 15 and $20 that uh, is excellent. And there's another one I've become a fan of, which is a red blend called Predator Wines. And that's P-R-E-D-A-T-O-R. And they're out of California. And for like 15, 18 bucks a bottle, I think you'll find two really, really good bottles out of, uh, out of the States. And then also, I think there's some incredible values in Malbec's and some of the great uh, Chilean wines and French wines. And it doesn't seem like there's a shortage now of, uh, of really good wines for $20 or less. Yeah, you don't have to spend all that much money. I remember a number of years ago on one of the morning shows on TV, and it was, it was New Year's Eve, actually, and they had four or five bottles of champagnes, and they did a taste test. And of course, the one that won $15 bottle of champagne. These guys were drinking $250 yeah. a bottle of champagne and they went, yeah, not really. <laughs> went with the cheap one. <laughs> so, all right, Jack, over to you for your bonus round. Everybody knows you for your political and lobbying work. Your college degree is the expected double major in poli-sci and public administration. Got that. Check those boxes off. But you also minored in theater. What were you thinking? Um, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, to be a shy, soft-spoken introvert to end up uh, doing theater was totally unexpected. And I literally, my first step on stage was, I had a lot of friends who were in the theater program. I was hanging out with them at a tryout for uh, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. And literally, I was the 12th man in a room. 
in which 11 men tried out for 12 parts. So I ended up being the second guard. <laughs> I think I had three lines, but I was on, I was on stage quite a bit. Stage. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's I kind of missed that. We did some community theater also. I specialized in supporting comic roles, if you can believe that. Very good with children, maybe because they shed disbelief so quickly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think of all the training in college and stuff like that that I did, I've heard two good sources for preparation for lobby or staff work in government. One was babysitting, and which develops patience. <laughs> And you learn how to get what you want necessarily with the most direct route. But the other thing is theater. I mean, mm -hmm. theater taught me how to better get out of my shell and, and project on stage. And but more importantly, it allowed me to create a persona and then would back it up eventually. I mean, you would actually become that eventually. But yeah, if without that lesson, I would probably be less successful than I was today. But yeah, I, guess I actually still kind of miss it, but it wasn't that good. <laughs> But isn't that the truth, though, that sometimes those leaps of faith that we do in something that we know it's not our strength becomes that strength? I've been honest about this. I mean, I have stage fright. I learned doing theater all the steps I need to do to step on stage today. And right. I still yeah. don't eat four hours before a presentation. I hate it when I'm at a conference and I present, present twice because that means <laughs> I don't eat until dinner or something like that. Bill, now he's become our resident rock star and I'm, uh, I'm beginning to be his opening act for him. <laughs> A number of years ago, I was the opening act, really, for Peter Yesowich out in Park City, Utah, for uh, their annual kickoff conference. But something went wrong with the travel arrangements. And so he said, can I go on first? And so I said, yeah, I, I don't leave till tomorrow. So, you know, be my guest. We swapped out positions. And so he was still packing up in the back when I said, I said it's great to have an opening act like Peter Yesowich tee it up for me. And he just <laughs> scowled at me. <laughs> So anyway, hey guys, thank you for taking time out of what has been just a breakneck pace schedule for this podcast. You have been rocking it through this crisis and we can't wait for the virtual convention uh, coming up in July. No, Bill, thank you. We appreciate all your support. And as we've told everyone, if there's anything we can do that we've uh, not already made available, please let us know. We'll do whatever we can to respond as quickly as we can because uh, right now these are really fluid times and we know sometimes... Uh, speed to market is essential. So uh, thanks to everybody who's been so supportive. You bet. Thanks, guys. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers. This is where the best and the brightest come to share their stories. It's called DMOU.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, our friends at Longwoods International, the producers of groundbreaking research, thought-leading insights, and excellent counsel and service to DMOs around the world. Learn more about the new breakthrough product, the Residence Sentiment Study. You can find that and more at longwoods-intl.com. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find the links to our services to the DMO sector, links to the Z News, videos, blogs, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.